0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Sharon Roja on the seven core issues in adoption and permanency.
1: My guest on the podcast today is Sharon Kaplan Roja. Sharon is an internationally known educator, presenter, and author. She's devoted 50 years of her professional career to the Institution of Foster Care and Adoption. While working in public and private agencies, as well as private practice venues, she's focused on crisis pregnancy, infertility, infant adoptions. Placement of children from the foster care system, including sibling groups and teenagers, and search and reunion. The additional issues of international adoptions, including transracial adoptions, gay and lesbian built families, and traumatized children with attachment challenges, have also been some of her specialty areas. Sharon has certainly paved the way in the world of understanding open adoption and her strong belief in preserving connections over time always comes across in her teaching and writing. She's lectured extensively both domestically and abroad. She's contributed to numerous books and professional articles and more recently released the book written along with Lisa Molina, The Open Adoption Experience, a complete guide for adoption and birth. She has also uh, released another book about the seven core issues of adoption, which is a large portion of what we're going to be talking about in the podcast today. So I'm looking forward to welcoming Sharon.
0: Have you ever wondered how does attachment theory impact your clinical practice? Do you want to refine your clinical skills? Train with the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join Karen Doyle-Buckwalter and Josh Carlson for attachment theory in action, coming to a city near you. You'll leave with extensive knowledge and proven interventions to increase the impact of the great work you are already doing. Visit tkcchaddock.org to sign up for this two-day training in St. Louis on October 18th and 19th. Or learn more about additional 2020 dates in Charlotte, Seattle, and Phoenix.
1: Hello, everybody, and we are back here to continue our discussion um, of the seven core issues in adoption and permanency. So, Sharon, let's continue. The, The fourth one that you write about is grief, and you were already touching on some of that in what you were just speaking about in terms of infertility, but Let's hear more about that and and your perspective on that.
2: Well, grief is hard work. We all know that. Um, It takes time out of our life. It's emotional. It's draining. And it's difficult if you can't pinpoint what it is that you're grieving. And so many of the losses in adoption and foster care and relative caregiving and donor insemination are if, a theory, a a, ephemeral, am I saying that right? Okay. Um, mm-hmm. to the listeners, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'm pushing 80. Sometimes the words <laughs> don't come like I want them to come. Uh, the, um, the issue here is that, as I said before the break, there's not a lot of permission to grieve what everybody sees as problem solving. And there's no real rituals to bury your unborn children, to set aside your fantasy child, to, if your grandparents, to grieve the child that is alive and well out there but unable to parent their own child so you find yourself parenting again at an unexpected stage of life. Um, You know, if if you did donor insemination, Um, Maybe one of you is genetically connected and the other isn't, and there may be grief issues associated with that. Um, The importance here is to recognize that the grief is the gateway to healing, that if we don't stop here and get very, very clear what's been lost and find a way in therapy, in groups, in journaling, in um, creating a ritual, um, asking for some spiritual guidance to lay things to rest. Uh, These things have to be put into words or objects even. Um, I know um, a family who literally created a burial box. And they put into it uh, a picture of each of the partners as babies uh, to represent what their offspring would have been confined up, Mm -hmm. Um, an announcement to their family that they were pregnant. Um, All of those things went in the box, their hopes and dreams, the ways that they believed their child would have been like them and different from them. And they literally put it in a box and they buried it and they had a service and their family was there and they had to make room in their hearts for the child who was going to arrive that was not their biological offspring and brought extra relatives and um that became healing for them i remember another woman who wrote a book she was a writer And she wrote the story of her fantasy daughter and she gave her a name and she wrote her whole life, uh, her pregnancy with her, her birth, who would have been there, what the shower would have been like. And she wrote the story of the daughter she didn't give birth to, had it leather bound and put on a bookshelf. And that's where she put her daughter that she really was hoping to have so that she could make room for the daughter that she was adopting as a single parent. And when she wanted to visit that other daughter, she could. She was somewhere concrete. Um, It is extremely important to create some kind of outward manifestation, even if it's planting a tree. Um, And part of the beauty of doing a ritual is that the people who love you are there witnessing it because sometimes they don't understand that just getting a child, getting a baby, getting a child, adopting a sibling set is not the same. All they think is, well, now you're parents, Mm -hmm. but there's a big gap between letting go what wasn't there and having what is there. You have to make room, I always say, to people in your heart and in your brain for the new people who are arriving. And shift from being pregnant To becoming parents
1: yes and I you know there could be a whole discussion about the topic of lack of ceremony and ritual in American culture Um, so it's just really beautiful that you are using this forum to really highlight that and how that can be a source of peace and healing uh, so I think it's, it's really terrific. I really appreciate you bringing that point up.
2: Well, and I'm bringing it up ter- in terms of birth first parents, and I'm bringing it up in terms of adoptees. Um, everybody needs a time in their life where they get very clear on what they lost and deal with the grief of that. Um, and so many birth first parents don't get follow-up counseling. If their rights are terminated in the court, uh, nobody follows up with them and their shame and guilt keeps them from getting the kind of help and grief work that would allow them to move on in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a whole untended group of our a constellation who are left open, injured and bleeding for the majority of their life. Uh, and we have a whole group of adoptees, former foster children, don- offspring of donor, et cetera, who've never had a chance to articulate that alternative road, who they would have been, what life might have been. All of those losses need to be articulated, nailed down, specifically addressed for people to ever get to the healing side of the core issues.
1: Because, you know, in some circumstances, you know, perhaps, um, International adoption from a very difficult circumstance or even um, foster care, there's this idea, well, you should be grateful, Mm. right? I hate that that word. (laughs) I know. And so that's not leaving a lot of space for (laughs) maybe there's aspects of this that. Are, are hard or I don't like, or I had hoped could be different. There's not a lot of space with that there. So yes, so important what you're bringing up. So, and you know, this kind of even ties in, these all tie together of course, but your next um, core issue of identity.
2: Yes, yes. You know, the basic question of identity is who am I really? Am I really this child's parent? Uh, if I didn't give birth to it, or I'm not genetically connected to this person. uh, So who am I really? Am I I still a parent, even if I'm not parenting every day? You know, we don't give credence in this society for the fact that we really do have three kinds of parents. We have legal parents, parenting parents, and genetic parents. And in foster care, particularly, or in many kinship situations, the the legal parent, which is the court, uh, stays present. And then you have the parenting parents, the everyday parents. And then you always have the genetic parents. They're always there, whether you acknowledge them or you don't. They, and, and birth first fathers, God help them. They're so often left out. They're 50% of our children's gene pool. And yet for so many families, uh, that information's missing. They seemed unimportant because the woman gave birth or she didn't want a name or she's angry at him or he deserted or whatever the reason may be. So we robbed children of that attachment in their life that would fulfill their identity formation. So the, the issue here, if you don't look like your parents, let's go back to the international adoption. You know, we... We Americanize those children. We change their names to an American name. We um, introduce them to American food, American clothing. We uh, don't bother to learn their language so that we can transition them and help them. You know, language keeps us connected to our culture. So the minute they stop losing their language, they have lost their culture. So now they don't look like the family. They also can communicate with people who do look like them. They've lost all of those kinds of attachments to those things that would nail down their identity. So who are they really? Um, For the birth first parents, they remain the genetic parents. But if in some ways that isn't acknowledged, if, if people don't go to them and say, a year down the road, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, you still matter. You've evolved, you've changed, your medical history has changed. Maybe you were struggling with alcohol or poverty or other things when this child came into the world, but maybe today you can give us really solid background information or updated medical information or provide a role model for a child of who they can become also connected to their genetics. So if we think of nature and nurture as Siamese twins, what frequently happens is we detach, we're back to these attachment issues, but we detach nature from nurture and make mm-hmm. it all about nurture, which is very difficult then in forming an identity. I go back, we mentioned in the book Andrew Solomon's work, um, you know, far from the tree that we have a horizontal identity and we have a vertical identity. And what so many of our children and parents don't understand is that they're both crucial to forming a solid identity. Mm -hmm. And if the parents doubt for one minute that they are the parenting parents and they have a right to take on that role, that that's what their child needs, then the child is robbed in more than one way. They don't have solid parenting parents, and they've lost their genetic parents, and so their identity is greatly impacted. And the issue that's really important here is that if you don't know who you are, you can't advance to the next core issue, which is intimacy. Intimacy is all about attachment. Intimacy is all about bringing all of who you are to the other person. So if you don't know who you are, how are you free to join in a relationship with anybody else? Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of people connected to adoption, foster care, relative caregiving, donor insemination, surrogacy, who are very limited in their abilities for deep emotional connections. And that is an issue that brings many, many people then into therapy. I just recently had a session with a young woman who said, I don't trust myself enough to make a relationship with anybody. I I don't like to be touched. I don't want to date. Um, You know, she's 20 years old. She's at university. She's not participating in the normal life events that somebody in her 20s would be doing and part of that that we're exploring is that she is very different from her adoptive family but they don't want to acknowledge that she's had no freedom to develop her own identity to search to gather information to begin to explore the various aspects of herself because she's afraid that she'll lose her adoptive family if she does it so she is not clear on her identity, and therefore unable to move into any forms of intimacy. And her intimacy with her parents is kind of false intimacy. It's based on their needs, not her needs.
1: Mm. And I think, you know, in thinking of attachment, we we think about the safe haven and secure base. And we think about, um, if we look at circle of security, for example, right. the, the coming back and refilling when you, you need that connection, but then the being able to separate and explore. Right. And that some parents have great difficulty tolerating with, with biological children as well, that separation and exploration, When you add the um, adoption status to it. And, and some of the things that we talked about earlier, that fear of, of letting them find out who they are and, and what will that mean for us. That's um, right. And so many of these
2: families are what I, well, you would use the same term, I think, but they're drawing from an empty well. Mm-hmm. They, they themselves, if they go back in their own history, did not have secure attachments in their own family system. So they don't even know the dance of attachment. And now they're in it with someone who's very different from them. And the marriage may be a lot of stumbling over each other's feet and may never have settled after the fertility um, onslaught. And, you know, even for those people who have a solid connection to their partner and they have parented successfully before, parenting as grandparents, parenting as aunts and uncles to children that come from a different beginning in your own family or parenting from foster care where you become a foster adopt parent Um, Each child Particularly when we're placing sibling groups each child has their own needs their own style of attachment they're drawing differently from their wells and families we overwhelm families in learning how to attach to each individual identity in the family give them ro- room to grow into who they are and explore and then move into different relationships with them and i think about the families that come from the foster care system where they've adopted three or four children it's great that siblings get you know get to be placed together but they're they're not a group they're a, they're a sibling of their sibling group of individual children with individual developmental phases with different attachment styles who've been wounded differently in the system and have their own traumas. Yes. And so that plays into the identity and intimacy issues as well. Mhm um I don't know. is
1: this making sense yes, absolutely I think um absolutely it is and and I think um before we move on, and i I know we're nearing the end of our time before we re- move on to your seventh concept, mastery and control, I wanted to ask you something that fits in here with intimacy and attachment and and some of the things that we're talking about, fear of letting exploration happen and figuring out who you are independent of us, um, so often uh, we get the question, those of us who, who work in the area of foster care and adoption, um, about open adoption. Well, if, if the children see their parents, they come home from the visit, you know, very upset or You know, we we had visits in foster care, and then my child started wetting the bed and would scream and cry and wouldn't want to go back. Um, And so there are all of these questions about, um, you know, should these fears about open adoption and valid concerns, seeing children's responses. Um, I know I hear that over and over again, and I would like to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Oh, I hear it over and over again, too.
1: <laughs> We're in it together.
2: <laughs> um, yes, I had this discussion with a client yesterday who said, you know, my, my six-year-old gets so upset when his birth mother comes and visits from London and then goes away, and then I have to deal with such havoc for, you know, a few weeks afterwards. Um, this is an important lesson for our children. This is about them learning how to connect and disconnect. It's about learning attachment skills. Um, It's about recognizing that adoption in foster care is very, very hard on children. It's about attaching and detaching and attaching and detaching. And saving them from the pain is not going to help them to learn how to negotiate their life. you can be there, you can support them, you can tell them it'll be okay, you can tell them that you know it's hard, you can rock them, you can kiss them, you can sing to them, you can do all those things. But the truth is it's healthy for them to know that people can come and go, that adults are not interchangeable cogs in a wheel, that when they go home and visit and it's upsetting and they come back, it's because Every single attachment and detachment is hard on them. But they have to learn those skills. They have to know that people don't just disappear. That different people give them different gifts. Some people are going to make them feel safer than others. But this is an important process. And if we do the work early, they'll have less difficulty doing it later. And that's our goal for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes. You know, um, earlier in my career, I had someone say, well, anything that's negatively impacting attachment and connection with the adoptive parents, whether that's visits with family or whatever, then you shouldn't do that. That should be stopped. And I, and I mean, as time has gone on, and I, more, um, I do agree it's important for the children to be kept safe and to know yeah. their adoptive parents are keeping them safe. Um, physically safe, of course. Um, and then I guess we think about well, what is emotional safety? Well, is that never exposing you to something painful or is that being available when you experience something painful? Mm -hmm. Right? Right. I think is what you're getting at. So, but boy, we really struggle with this issue. Um, and I think it also, uh, what also comes in there is, you know, whether, your biological parent, grandparent, foster parent, adopted parent—we have a hard time seeing our children in pain.
2: Of course, and we, some of these people caused our children pain before we got them.
1: Right, and we just have a hard time. Just you know, I've had a hard time with disappointments my kids have, like not even this magnitude, you know. So right. I think that you know we sometimes, um, or or caregivers, parent figures. We need to find the support that we need to be able to be a holding environment for that pain, not like, oh my God, I can't stand to see this happen.
2: Right.
1: And you know what? It's where our
2: issues get triggered. So when we go back to the constellation, it's also triggering us. Yes. So that's why we need outside support so it doesn't come out on our our kids. Yes. One of the things I always say is if you're going to pull back, I want you to think about how you're going to look your 16 year old child in the face when they're furious with you and they say to you, why did you do that? What will your answer be? Is it because you were afraid because it was too much trouble because you worried that they were really in danger? What's the reason that you wouldn't allow for that visit? What's the reason you cut off the relationship? Because someday as a parent, you're going to have to answer that very angry teenager about why you did what you did. And you better have a better reason than you were afraid or you were too busy yes. because frequently that is what the issue is. Yes. Now, do I say sending them away to a place where they, are, they don't feel safe, where the court has demanded that they visit people who have molested them, hurt them, can't provide a safe environment.
1: Completely different I'm,
2: Completely different. But just because they're different than you, just because maybe they don't have your fancy language, just because they drive a really old rickety car, uh, just because what they're able to afford is uh, a McDonald's and not a healthy meal, um, doesn't mean that they're not good for your kids. Mm -hmm. And so your kids have to learn that there are all kinds of ways that people function in the world. What a great lesson for them.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for that. So your seventh core issue <laughs> mastery and control yeah. as we wind down. What can you yeah. share about that and that is the ultimate that separation and feeling yeah. secure as we were saying to go into the world and have a sense of efficacy and self-esteem and and all of that so tell us about this one
2: yes a solid what you're looking for in your mastery is a solid identity not that we don't continue to grow and add but a solid core identity um, a real sense of building intimacy with others attachment skills what some of us call building Velcro on our hearts. So we learn early, learn early on how to attach and then transfer and attach and transfer. So we're full of Velcro on our hearts. <laughs> and um, we can go out in the world with a sense of good self-esteem and not constantly be afraid of rejection and that we have skills. And that's the key issue for mastery, that we have skills to negotiate the world And skills include having a secure base, a place, whether it's friends, spouse, friendship circles, um, whatever it might be, our uh, family that, uh, uh, that has raised us, but that we know we can return home, whatever that home is. Sometimes it's ourselves that we can come home and return home to ourselves at night. That's mastery. Control is something we all lost. If you look at what happened, remember I started out by saying everybody had to lose things that were rather profound before they ever gained anything. Well, the mastery is where the gains are. But the biggest loss we all had was power over our lives. And the children lost the greatest amount of power. And they vie for control off and on all their growing up years control to, to have access to their original information, control to see who they look like, control to go back to their countries of origin and see if they can find the village that they came from. Um, that control for information, for pieces, is a major journey for our children. And one of the things I hear from families frequently, and I get, I mean, I do consultations with people all over the world, and one of the things I hear frequently is somebody saying, I'm, I'm out of control, or my child's out of control, or I don't know how to deal with my child's control issues. And, you know, it's a big issue because you don't grow up, unless you grow up in a family by adoption, um, you don't grow up saying, I'm going to someday uh, go to a, a total stranger, share my most intimate details. Uh, beg and plead in some form to be able to have them stamp me with approval and allow me to parent and then have people visit my home and tell me how to do it and check out the heat of my water and whether I've got lock boxes for the pills and whether I've got a fence around the pool, that other people are going to be judging me and that society for a long time is going to judge me. And if I say anything about, God, I don't like my kids today, somebody's going to say, well, you asked to adopt them, stop complaining, or you wanted to be parents. So that whole outside issue around control follows families, parents forever. The kids, you know, they, they didn't ask to be a part of the brown family or the green family. They didn't get to choose which family they were going to go into. Nobody asked them, even if you're in California, if you're 12, you have to consent to your own adoption. And I remember going to court with a 14-year-old. And the judge said, well, you want to be adopted by this family? And he goes, you know, your Honor, your Honor, it isn't like I've got a whole bunch of families giving me a choice. This is the family that said they would take a 14-year-old, so they'll do. Okay, You know, that was his level of control, right? Yeah. So, um you know, wow, there is yeah. so no control. And for the birth first parents, particularly those who lose their children to the termination of rights, they were deemed unfit, no good, not able. Does that mean that they have to give up their other kids? Does that mean that it can't have any future children? Um, does that mean they have no rights ever to know how the kids that they're not parenting are doing? Um, I get calls from birth first parents who say to me, Do I even have a right to know if they're alive or dead? We have an earthquake in California. We get phone calls from women who say, how will I know if my child died? 9-11, phone calls from all over the country. How will I know if my child was in one of those airplanes? So they have an ongoing sense of loss of control. So that issue, what does it mean to be powerless from the beginning in this process? And how do people jockey for control all through their life and how do you gain the mastery to see the gains where a child might actually go back to the adoptive family and say if i could do it all again i'd choose you whoa what a great sense of mastery that would be if i could do it again i would choose you you were great parents okay yes um for the birth first parent to find out that their kids were loved and grew up healthy, and weren't further abused and and didn't have struggles with their adoptive family, what a validation! The skills in life that we gain from attachment and addressing our trauma allow us to come through and master the experience of the losses that the trauma. Original trauma of separation for all of us caused. And so this becomes the cycle. This becomes the cycle. Yes. And again, you know, we have pages and pages of how do you master things? What do you do? Because, you know, I have to tell you the truth, and your re- your listeners are going to laugh. But we got to Mastery and Control after spending two years writing this book. And I sat down and I looked at Allison and I said, honey, I'm pushing 80 you're in your fifties, what do we really know about mastery and control? You know, I I wanted to say, excuse my language listeners, but what the do I know? You know, will I ever really know enough to say that we can master all this pain? This is a journey, not for the weak of heart. And we, we make light of adoption, and we really are making light of it again today But when we say things like, don't abort, do adoption. The two issues are so separate. They bring about their own losses and their own core issues. This is not light. This is heavy. And every time we have another loss, and people ask me this, when I do it, am I done? Hmm. Every subsequent loss can re-trigger the cycle. But the, yes. the issue is once we've gotten to mastery, we now have the skills to zip through that cycle quickly or quicker at least. Okay? Yes. And each time our mastery gets stronger and we're not as afraid to risk loss. We're more able to step in and step up mm-hmm. in our relationships Because loss isn't the big issue for us any longer. We know how to master it. Yes. So that's where the gains and the gifts are, Karen. Yes. If we do the work, the gains of a life fulfilled are there in our grasp.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much. This has been really a fantastic discussion um, about these issues. And I want everyone to know, where they can find your book where they can find your articles where they could pursue having you speak at an event so let everyone know where to find you
2: (laughs) well the book the seven core issues of adoption and permanency by myself and allison davis maxson can be purchased on amazon Um, and we'd be thrilled um, if you took a look at it. It's written in the form of what we call forward-facing. It's for the people touched by um, all of these forms of family building, but at the end of every chapter are notations specifically to therapists. So if you're working with this issue, think about these issues. Um, And you can certainly reach me uh, at my website, um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, my email is Sharon, S H A R O N at Sharon, S H A R O N Roja, R O S like in sugar, Z like in zebra. I A dot com, and you can find me that way on Facebook and Twitter. And it's www.sharonrosia.com on uh, my website. I am so happy to talk to any of you anytime and to argue with you because you know what? People often have issues around this and I am thrilled to enter into dialogue about what comes up for you when you're reading the book.
1: Great, well, thank you so much and goodbye for now. Thanks, Karen,
2: it was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchatik.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchatik.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.